Hey, Kate. Hey, Daniel. Welcome to Hot and Bothered, a podcast on climate politics in the time of coronavirus. We are hosted by Descent Magazine, and our producer is Colin Kinnebura. This week, we are talking to Mary Anais Hagler, who's an amazing writer on climate justice and the host of Hot Take, another excellent podcast on climate politics. Yeah, we had a really great uh, conversation. I was so thrilled that we got to have uh, Mary on. You know, I think of her as someone whose you know, writing has really exploded in the last year on issues of climate justice, uh, racial justice. She writes a lot about the kind of uh, emotional kind of quality of, of um, being someone who thinks and works on climate change all the time. Um, and this work has really, really resonated. And, you know, she was sort of moderating a conversation that Kate and I, along with uh, Theo Rio Francos and Alyssa Battistoni, had about our book, A Planet to Win, a few weeks ago. And she asked us, you know, what our take was on the Bernie campaign's failure to ultimately win the nomination. Um, and so this week was great because we got to turn the question on her. Um, and, you know, I think Kate and I are both big, big Bernie supporters. And it was nice to um, give someone else a chance to kind of give their take on what went wrong with the campaign, and in particular, its inability to win over older Black voters and, and Black voters uh, in the South. Yeah, no, I found it one of, I think, one of the most clarifying kind of postmortems of the Bernie campaign um, that I <laughs> have heard yet, but I mean, anywhere. And that's biased, obviously, because it's our podcast, but um, I think it's it's worth listening to, and I, I, won't, uh, I won't spoil it. Yeah, and this, Mary reports a really fascinating conversation with her... Um, Mom, uh, and just this question of how Bernie's campaign was kind of uh, resonating or not resonating um, in the in the South. So, anyways, um, we can't wait to get to the interview. But first, there are a couple other items that crossed our desks this week that we wanted to uh, talk about briefly. Um, you know, first, there's this ongoing stimulus uh, dumpster fire. Uh, the latest round, I guess, is this proposal on the House Democratic side from. You know, Majority Speaker uh, Nancy Pelosi, uh, so-called Heroes Act, billions of dollars, including massive transfers to states and cities, a new round of cash transfers, but nothing really in the way of green stimulus, uh, as far as I can tell. Yeah, I mean, I think it's in some ways a little bit worse than that. And, there, you know, there's good stuff in it, right? There's money for the U.S. Postal Service, like you said, state and local cash transfers. Um, that's all, you know, good and vitally necessary. But it also doesn't touch uh, the giveaways to the oil and gas industry that were included in the last stimulus. And I think, you know, it's not possible really to write any kind of carbon neutral stimulus that doesn't kind of take that problem head on. Yeah, I mean, I don't know what your read on this is, Kate. And, you know, I'm not a congressional trench war specialist or anything, but it seems like, you know, Donald Trump is not going to get reelected without a stimulus. I mean, it's just you don't get reelected with 10 or 15 or 20 percent unemployment. So I, I, I sort of sometimes feel like the the Democratic Party has a lot of leverage here, because if there is no stimulus, then the economy will just absolutely tank and uh, Biden will get elected. So I find it sort of strange that Mitch McConnell's um, reaction seems to be the thing they're the most worried about when actually they have the White House over a barrel. Yeah, that's a, I mean, that's the wild thing about it is that the HEROES Act is intended as a messaging bill, 
right? This is not, you know, the thing that they're trying to get past word for word into law. And even so, there's like all this sort of wild stuff about, you know, allowing uh, C6 kind of lobbying trade organizations like the American Petroleum Institute to apply for stimulus funds. Um, you know, that is not 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 the kind of thing you would hope to be a, a messaging bill um, for the opposition party. Yeah, I think, you, I mean, you just said it. It's a messaging bill. And you pick up the paper every day or read online and people are just freaking out about unemployment. And this doesn't even really read as a jobs bill. Uh, and yet it's trillions. I mean, I think the estimates are around $3 trillion. So, I mean, they're not, if we, if we do five, eight trillion in stimulus, if you add up what's been passed and what's being proposed, the idea that we can go back again for another five trillion for jobs, it, it's, I, I can't quite figure out why they're not leading with jobs right now when that is the thing that everybody is really freaking out about testing uh treatment jobs um even the state to local transfers could be talked about more explicitly in terms of jobs and economic transformation but i just want to ask you to just say a word kate speaking of jobs on a recent story you did on on jobs in the oil patch that might you know new jobs that don't could go to people in the oil patch or workers in that industry but no longer extracting oil and i and i say that just quickly because I feel like with climate politics, what I've really learned in the last few years is, paradoxically, the more you kind of drill into details, um, the clearer often these things get. Um, And I think I'd love to hear your sort of take on how when you get into the kind of nuts and bolts of what kinds of work is being done and could be done, actually the idea of an opposition even between um, that sector and green recovery doesn't exactly exist, or rather between the workers and the recovery. Drilling into the details sounds like a really fun PDF. Uh, <laughs> I love PDFs. Um, yeah. I'm hot and bothered. All of the uh, all of the various various ways for uh, workers in the oil and gas sector to transition. Um, yeah, so I I wrote two pieces kind of in the last week trying to look at this, and I think uh, the sort of upshot is best summarized by something. Uh, someone I interviewed um, sent to me a civil engineer uh, who works on climate and transport. Um, you, you know, I think we've both talked to him a bit, Costa Samaras, and uh, he said there's a lot we do underground that isn't drilling up oil and gas. Um, and so I looked at geothermal, which I think I truly just knew nothing about um, before, you know, the last the last week or two, um, which is you know most sort of famously used in places like Iceland. Uh, has a lot of it. Kenya also gets, you know, some huge proportion of its power um, from geothermal, which is uh, sort of easiest to find around around kind of hot springs and, and things like that. Um, but they're that's also- wild, by the way. I had never heard that Kenya was a geothermal power. You mentioned that to me over text the other day. It's just we should know that. It's not something like and uh, something like eighty percent of their power. A big chunk of that is geothermal. The other chunk is hydro. Um, so, you know, it's almost all uh, n- no carbon power uh, that they have with, uh, I think, very little nuclear, actually. Um, but yeah, I mean, the the thing, so I, I talked to this guy, Tim Latimer, who um, runs a geothermal company, and he got his start in the oil and gas industry, and everyone on his team actually um, started their careers sort of learning how to get oil out of the ground and the thing he told me which was you know just sort of mind-blowing is that basically the equipment is the same and the 
the type of expertise you need to operate it is largely the same. There's some differences in training. There's, you know, some uh, a, a kind of slight learning curve. But for the type of drilling they're doing, which is is horizontal fracturing, it's it's you know in in many ways very similar to um, how you frack for oil or gas. Uh, but there are you know just far fewer uh, concerns about. Uh, toxic chemicals. And, you know, I think there is a lot to be explored is what folks I talked to um, said about this from the kind of climate justice side is that there's a lot, you know, we, we don't know necessarily at this point, but science point to this being a, a relatively, you know, clean source of power and uh, that can really put folks to work digging up no carbon fuel. Yeah. I mean, it's super interesting. I definitely recommend folks check out those stories. Um, that will all be on the show notes. And, you know, I think that there's an estimate, a government estimate from a few years ago that this, you know, expanded geothermal could provide up to 20% of U.S. energy. So it is really serious stuff. Um, and then I guess the last thing to note quickly, you know, I, you know, there's been this ongoing talk of Biden, you know, the story in the New York magazine, would Biden be the next FDR? He's thinking about a Rooseveltian uh, presidency, which um, I don't know. I mean, I welcome Biden saying that he welcomes the hatred of his donors. Um, you know, it's hard to know what's going to happen. I think my only kind of comment on this is that I, I feel some of the political commentary is too much focused on what does Biden himself really want, even what his, some of his top advisors really want, and not enough on the actual lesson of the New Deal, which is that Roosevelt you know, runs promising 25% spending reduction and ultimately is pushed far to the left by massive mobilization, unprecedented strike wave, as we talked about on the show with Raj Patel a few weeks ago. And so the, I wish we would worry less about what Biden wants and even maybe what some of his insiders want and focus more on the power mapping and the kind of power building strategies to push an administration that could be governing under conditions of a massive depression into the kind of progressive green stimulus policies that we want. I also think, you know, the lesson for the New Deal that doesn't get talked about as much is that it like made the case for itself over and over again and put, you know, projects in every county in the U.S. And I think, you know, getting back to what we were talking about, uh, about, you know, geothermal and kind of options for oil field workers, um, you could see even like a, 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 a sort of real politic approach to that, which is to say, okay, there are folks who are in declining industries in places like Texas and Pennsylvania. And, you know, these are states which are not uh, unimportant in, in a presidential election. And so maybe you you would come up with some sort of New Deal scale plan uh, to, to rescue these communities and try to transition off of fossil fuels. I mean, I'm not holding my breath for that. But um you know, I, th- I think there's there's the the politics and the policy of the New Deal aren't so easily kind of parsed out from one another. And, you know, the same is true for a Green New Deal. No, that's a great point. And, you know, if it, it what that means is that, you know, to win does mean that it will need significant victories within the administration, you know, whole agencies and departments, whether it's DOE or HUD or EPA, you know, or, or some kind of climate mobilization office, you name it, um, you know, really being run by and accountable to members of the, the climate movement, um, broadly construed. And then just, you know, last thing to, to note quickly, uh, sort of late breaking news as we're taping this, you know, the announcement of these Biden-Bernie joint committees on various issues, including climate change with, you know, the climate committee co-chaired by uh, AOC and, and John Kerry. But we'll, we'll dig into that uh, next week um, on the show. So um, 
One last reminder before we get to our conversation with Mary. Uh, the first is we're counting on listener support to make this podcast possible. So if you are by now a diehard, hot and bothered fan, uh, and you haven't already signed up to support the show, please do head over to patreon.com slash hot bothered climate. Now, we realize this is a time when a lot of people might not be able to give. Uh, that means that we are counting on those who do happen to have a few bucks a month uh, to spare to pitch in and help keep this podcast free for everyone. You'll also get some great perks like a monthly happy hour, uh, the book we co-wrote with Elizabeth Astoni and Theorio Francos, and a digital subscription to Descent Magazine. Yeah, we've been like really, really grateful to everyone who's been um, able to pitch in so far, whether it's five or ten or uh, or three or then even twenty bucks a month. Um, so for those of you in the lucky position of having more than a few bucks to spare, uh, pitching in the full twenty, you'll not only be able to enter the Temple of Public Luxury uh, category, but you will get a second great ebook from Verso uh, in addition to ours. Yeah, you can get either The Case for a Green New Deal by Anne Pettifor or Extreme Cities, The Peril and Promise of Urban Life in the Age of Climate Change by our friend Ashley Dawson. It's a really great book uh, looking at how popular movements in cities have responded to climate disaster and are pushing back against the kind of uh, disaster capitalism we're seeing now and see in response to you know every every storm and hurricane, it seems. So you'll get uh, the, the full Green New Deal starter pack. Full Green New Deal starter pack. Um, and we've had a few people pitch in uh, at that Temple of Public Luxury level um, already. So, you know, querying marble for these for these temples. Uh, so thanks again to those who've uh, pitched in so far once again. And for those of you able to join, our next happy hour will be on June 9th, uh, the exact time to be determined. We're you know, juggling time zones over here. Um, and whether you're able to pitch in financially or not, you can also help spread the word about the show. Please rate and review us on iTunes or your, you know, podcast platform of choice. And get in touch. We'd love to hear your feedback, uh, suggestions for guests, etc. And tweet at us using the hashtag hotbotheredclimate. Or you can email us at hot.bothered.climate at gmail.com. So without further ado... Let's uh, get into our conversation with Mary Anais Hegler. Mary is co-host of the Hot Take podcast and co-author of its companion, the Hot Take newsletter. Mary's climate writing has recently appeared in The New Republic, The Boston Globe, and Vox, among other outlets. And she is also a writer in residence at Columbia University's Earth Institute. So, Mary, welcome to Hot and Bothered. Thank you. Thank you for having me. So the first thing I'm going to ask you is, how is your quarantine going? <laughs> um, I like As far as quarantines go, it's probably going well. Um, I haven't lost my mind yet, um, which is like a little bit surprising to me. Um, and yeah, I'm, I'm excited for it to be over at some point in my lifetime, though. I'm really looking forward to it being over as well. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, interesting. Before this, I was um, feeling kind of like I, I have a pretty big apartment because Bronx apartments are very big. And I was like, maybe I should have gotten a studio. And then after COVID, I was like, no, no I made the right decision. This is, this is a good idea. 
Yeah, no, you don't want the city to be your living room right now. That's not. <laughs> no. That's not good. Um, so you've got a newsletter, a hot take with Amy Westervelt, um, and it's linked uh, to your incredible podcast of the same title, uh, Hot Take. And your inaugural uh, issue of the newsletter hit my inbox this past Sunday. And one of the points you make in the newsletter is that some climate activists are up to their old tricks. Uh, they're minimizing the COVID epidemic. They're saying things like, well, this isn't really a big deal. You know, the really big deal is the climate emergency. And you, know, you reproduce this cartoon uh, that shows sort of the climate emergency looming as so much bigger than a boxing match with, with COVID. So uh, do you wanna, why don't you tell me about the climate narratives that have been frustrating you in the last few weeks? Yeah, so when it comes to climate and COVID, um, I talked about this a little bit on Emily um, Atkins' podcast, Heated. Um, I, I think we're getting better with it, um, but for, especially in the early days of climate or, or of COVID, um, there was this tendency to either not want to talk about climate at all because it was feeling like, oh, this is not the time to talk about climate because COVID is like such an immediate uh, danger. And then on the other hand, it was, well, climate is much bigger than COVID. So if you're worried about COVID, basically you're worried about the wrong crisis. Um, and I think to, I think we're getting away from the whole, it's not the time to talk about it. And, but we're still, I'm still seeing this narrative of, well, climate is so much bigger than COVID, so you should worry about climate instead. Um, and the problematic word in that sentence is instead. <laughs> you don't have to choose which one you, you worry about. Um, and I think the environmental movement and the climate movement has a dark history of doing that specifically to communities of color. Um, and was a big part of why I didn't see myself as part of the environmental movement for a long time, because it would be like, oh, you're worried about police violence. You need to be worried about the polar bears. What the fuck? What? Why? For what? Um, and also, why do I have to choose? Like, why does it have to be like, I either care about polar bears or I care about police violence? Like, that's a false dichotomy. And I think we're running into the same space with climate and COVID. You don't have to trump for lack of a better term, COVID to make the case for climate, you could just connect the dots because they're not unconnected. Yeah, I think this echoes the argument you make uh, in an essay you wrote in February of last year called Climate Change Isn't the First Existential Threat, which we'll link to in the show notes. So at the time in, in that essay, you criticized the existential exceptionalism of climate advocates. Uh, where they, you know, sort of act like, I mean, as you just said, act like climate change is this totally unique, unprecedented threat to decency as if, uh, for example, Black people haven't faced centuries of existential threats in the U.S. and elsewhere. So I'm curious if you want to connect kind of what you were um, just talking about, you know, in kind of this narrative about coronavirus um, to that, you know, is this all sort of part of the same basic phenomenon? Yeah, well, I would say that climate change is uh, unprecedented. Like, it's the first time we face an existential threat in which the future becomes finite. Um, I was thinking about that earlier today. Like, there, there is a difference between, like, well, you can fix it another day. Like, climate kind of takes that out of the picture. So it, it is really different. Um, it is um, bigger in the sense that it like it's the planet it's the entire the whole ecosystem upon which any other threat would have played out has now become the threat itself 
So that, that is different. Um, but the problem I was seeing when I wrote that essay was sort of like um, the environmental movement was kind of acting like it didn't have anything to learn from other movements because no other threat had been quite the same or exactly the same. Um, and I think that's, that's bullshit um, because whether or not it's the exact same, it felt the same to people who lived through those previous tragedies. The one that I lean on in that essay is the Jim Crow South, which I think a lot of people think is about water fountains and buses, but it was absolutely far, far deeper than that. It was extreme terrorism um, day and night. Um, so, but there's plenty of others. There's the Holocaust, there's slavery, there's like all these, you know, different, like colonialism in the Belgian Congo where people's arms and legs were getting cut off and so many other examples that you could use where like the threat to people's lives was very real, very visceral. And so the sorts of ways that they learned to combat that type of threat, um, the, the climate movement could learn a lot from that. And that was basically what I was trying to, the argument I was trying to make in there. Yeah, and I want to get into how how some of these narratives can get can get better and, and how the stories we tell about climate change can can really um reflect that and and you know just really be communicating with more people overall so you know i, I take it you are interested in the green new deal um so i'm wondering if you've seen storytelling around the green new deal as doing a better job than than some of these than some of these other narratives um kind of you know what the what the potential is there and, and how, how a sort of story about the Green New Deal um, can, uh, can really just be clear-eyed about, about history and about, you know, building, um, you know, the, the type of movement that we, we need to get, you know, the sort of overwhelming scale of what we need to get done. Yeah, I think the storytelling I've seen around the Green New Deal is extremely unique in the, in the arc of climate narrative. Um, and that it it paints a picture of the future that is not terrifying um, and it's not just blank. And I think that's the, been the case with climate storytelling for a really long time. It's sort of been, um, it's been about a future that is like literally on fire or a present um, where we're just not making the right decisions. Whereas like, the Green New Deal sort of paints a picture of a future you want to live in, not just one that you could live in. Um, so it goes beyond a livable future and it's like a future you want to live in, um, which is really interesting and inspiring. Um, it also, as far as I understand it, purports to actually solve the whole problem. I think if I look for like sort of the quote resolutions to a lot of the struggles for justice, over the past, you know, however many generations, almost all of them get to this point where they almost solve the problem. And then somebody is like, yeah, not the time you've gotten enough, like give it a rest for a while. Um, and I kind of feel like had we like really resolved the original sins of this country being slavery and indigenous genocide, like the, after uh, abolition, there was a point where it was like, okay, well, you've gotten enough, let's leave it alone for now. But had we continued, like had reconstruction actually happened and gone forward into like, what's the word, like reconciliation, 
then maybe we never would have gotten to the point of climate collapse. Um, and so I think we can't play those games anymore where we like almost fix the problem. Um, I think we need a holistic solution if we're really going to get ourselves out of this. And that's what the Green New Deal, as I understand it, purports to do. But y'all can probably tell me even better if that's like the right interpretation. I, I, I love that. Um, and I love the thinking about it as fundamentally a holistic um, approach. So then let me ask you about um, who I think of as the kind of big Green New Deal political candidate um, of the last year, which would be, you know, Bernie Sanders. And what certainly wasn't the only person to endorse the Green New Deal, but uh, was the kind of overwhelming favorite of, let's say, the pro-Green New Deal environmental movement. Um, and Bernie did well. He came in second, uh, which is better than everybody except for Joe Biden, but that's not good enough. And he lost yeah, he lost. And he lost very badly in particular with um, with black voters and in particular in the South and in particular older black voters. Um, so, um, you know, you and I have talked a little bit about this, uh, you know, off offline. And, and I'd love to hear a bit more now. Um, and I guess especially from a messaging perspective, but any other one, if, if you if you would like, you know what? Take acknowledging that many things that happened that were unfortunate for Bernie were beyond his control, the Democratic establishment the news landscape and all that. But what could, what do you think the team could have done differently? What did you see as kind of mistakes that were avoidable in terms of making the case um, with Black voters and especially older Black voters and especially in the South? Yeah, I think um, there was just sort of, within the, the rhetoric that I was seeing come out of the Bernie campaign, and to be fair, I wasn't paying attention to it like a hawk the entire time. Um, I, my favorite candidates went from Julian Castro to Elizabeth Warren to Bernie Sanders. Um, but um, I think that there was a lack of understanding of who black baby boomers were. Um, and that was, that kind of showed up to me where I would see baby boomers be uh, painted with a really broad brush. And I see this all the time in progressive circles where like all baby boomers are basically painted as like racist Fox News watching, you know, bigots. Um, and that's not who black baby boomers are. Um, and so they're like the, the exact opposite of that. And so understanding like, First of all, that about them, understanding that they literally built the Democratic Party as we understand it, as we have it now, and understanding that it, when you build something like that with your own blood, sweat, and tears, literally, um, you are going to be a loyalist to it, and you are going to be protective of it. So I think, um, I actually talked to my mother about this. Um, one of the things that was off-putting for her was that um, Bernie is not really being a Democrat. Um, and you can argue with somebody about whether or not that's wrong, but I don't think that enough work was done to understand, like, that's how they feel. And then you meet a voter where they are, not where you want them to be, or not, you know, judging them for where they are. So I think that was a problem. I also think that there was a lot of room left for um, an actual conversation to be had about who this generation is, why they're important, like why why is it important to kiss the ring of black baby boomers? And that's because they they earned that ring. The reason you can have a, a party or a campaign like Bernie Sanders that's so ambitious and so involved with like youth um, with you young voters and like building this sort of movement or whatever, um, 
is because of the work that Black baby boomers did. Like the last time you saw that type of engagement with young voters uh, was, you know, Freedom Summer, really. Um, and the voter registration drives that they did, that they literally risked their lives to do. So it, one of the things my mother said to me, <laughs> I had avoided this conversation for a while because like, look, there's only so much that you can convince your parents to do especially when you know you're their youngest child and especially when um your mom was older than integration like there's just certain conversations you can't really you don't have the qualifications to talk to them about so i took my time having this conversation with my mom um but one of the things she said to me was that the bernie sanders campaign made her feel like they saw her as an uncle tom um, and that was just like, it really hurt me when I heard my mother say that. Um, yeah. That, no, that's, um, that's definitely not the sign of a campaign message that's working. I mean, and that's a horrible feeling to imagine. Um, yeah, I, I also think, you know, there's a real story to be told there about Black and Jewish solidarity during the civil rights movement. Um, that Bernie could have told. I think he he absolutely should have gone to Selma. I don't understand why he didn't. Um, I think that he should have done sort of like a tour of civil rights uh, monuments in the South and sort of built his own sort of listening campaign through that to get to know Black baby boomers and talk to them. Um, and, you know, if I could go back in time and like actually have the guts to have had this conversation with my mother before, during the primaries, I would have told her that the reason I can believe in a campaign like Bernie Sanders is because of her. And, you know, probably would have built more of a message out of that. Um, but yeah, Bernie should have gone to Selma. He should have gone to Philadelphia and Mississippi um, and commemorated the Freedom Summer murders there or to Emmett Till's um, memorial that is constantly being desecrated. Um, there's just so much that he could have done to build those inroads that MSNBC and all of these other things that were stacked against him couldn't have taken away from him. Yeah. Um, I want to ask you a, a deep, a, a more substantive follow-up, but quickly, where, remind me, where does your mother um, live? Or what part of the South does she, she grew up in? Oh, she grew up in Nashville, Tennessee. Um, but she now lives in um, rural South west mississippi like we're on the mississippi river yeah i mean i guess the you know the the, the point about listening to i, I want to draw out um i think what what stands out about the bernie success with latino voters is told by chuck roca who who organized it um he's given a lot of interviews about it is sort of that he was authorized to spend a lot of money and to go to latino communities around the country and to then rebuild the, the whole overall bernie campaign this wouldn't be like a subunit of the campaign but the, the campaign overall would sort of adjust and reflect um, what they were hearing from Latino communities. And that obviously worked really well. I'm, I'm curious, I mean, what, you know, if we think about like the substance of Bernie's policies, maybe, or even, even the messaging, what, you know, what do you think he would have heard if he had done the kind of listening that you're talking about? And I don't know if that has anything to do with the Green New Deal or simply the broader social vision. Yeah, um, I'm going to do something that I told y'all just like a second ago I wasn't going to do, which is read from my own work. Um, so there is, um, in the essay that y'all mentioned earlier, there's a passage where I say, 
So the next time you want to educate communities of color about climate change, remember that they have even more to teach you about building movements, about courage, about survival. And if you take that sentence and remove climate change and replace it with revolution and take out communities of color and say black baby boomers, I think you come to the problem with why there was such a gap between the Bernie Sanders campaign and older black voters. Um, because, you know, he's saying he's building this revolution. It's like, but who do you think taught this country how to build a revolution? Like, what are you going to teach us about building a revolution? Um, and there's, there's something very real to that. You know, like there's been a couple of times when I, when I finally talked to my mom about it, I think it took a little while for me to get past the MSNBC talking points and get to like actually her. Um, and I've kind of, my mom loves MSNBC, so whatever. Um, but I've learned how to like get past when I'm talking to Rachel Maddow and when I'm talking to my actual mother. Um, and I knew I was talking to her when she was like, well, what the fuck do you know about struggle? You weren't even born. She wasn't talking about me in that case. She was talking about like someone else that she heard representing the, the Bernie Sanders campaign. Um, but that's a lot of what you, what you will hear. And like what the trick is with that generation, I think, is like you really have to listen um, and be attentive to what they actually went through. Because I think we talk about the civil rights movement like it was a long time ago. It really, really wasn't. Um, and there's no way to go up in the South and not know that. It feels very, very present, very recent. Um, and especially to the people who live through it. Like I, I will often hear this on the left of like people talking to me about how my ancestors fought for my right to vote. It's like, that wasn't my ancestor. That was my mother. <laughs> my mom doesn't count as my ancestor. Like I can call her. Um, so I think, you know, we treat it like it was a long time ago, but it was very recent and we act like it. Yeah. I mean, that, that's a really great point. And in fact, if, if anybody <laughs> exemplifies that in a way, it's Bernie. I mean, he is literally the one who can say, I'm old enough to have remembered the March on Washington. Um, so, you know, he should be old enough to know that there are a lot of other people around his, his age who vote um, and who have a lot, a lot to say. Let, let me push you on just one more aspect of this. Um, something that I've been thinking about, you know, around this question is, um, and it's influenced a bit by research in, in Latin America, where I, where I also spend time. Um, which is that um, Bernie's kind of like the outcome that Bernie is promising, I think in a lot of ways for people who are not doing very well economically is, is to stabilize their situation, right? Rent control is about stabilizing communities. Um, healthcare, universal healthcare, Medicare for all is about stabilizing your health coverage. So it's not changing year to year at the whim of your employer. Um, a lot of the policies promise stability and I think a way that people whose communities are being torn apart would really appreciate. But the flip side of it, is that the method is not stable at all. It's the political revolution um, and sacrifice and pain and conflict. Um, and just as you were saying, the people there are people who know a lot about that trade-off, um, what it means to uh, just throw away whatever stability they have uh, to try to fight for something better. And, and like you're saying, that's a lot of um, Black people and Black communities uh, around the country. Um, and I wonder if you thought that that might have also been, though, a, a challenge Bernie faced, which was promising people who could probably use a bit more stability, uh, economic stability in particular in their lives, and, and also, you know, climate stability. Um, but the method was was disruption. And maybe in the way that he talked about it just didn't connect at all 
with the voters you're talking about. I mean, it connected, I think, with Latino voters who definitely did worse under Obama because of the horrible immigration policies. But sorry, that's a bit of a tangent. But just the sort of like tension between basically promising stability and promising disruption kind of at the same time. Yeah. Um, I don't know about that, but for me, actually, one of the things that, like like I said, Bernie was like my third progressive candidate <laughs> that I went to. Um, part of my problem with how he talked about that was he would often go to like, well, they have it in Sweden, why can't we have it here? Or they have it in Norway, why can't we have it here? Or whatever. And to me, um, of course they have that shit in Europe. They stole it. <laughs> they stole it from people who look like me. So maybe come up with a better plan. Um, then we're just going to emulate these places that stole it from people. Um, so that was something that made it hard for me to um, make Bernie my first choice. Um, I don't know why a lot of that sounded, um, didn't resonate necessarily with older Black voters, but that was why I struggled with it. Yeah, there's there's something uniquely strange about, uh, I mean, as someone who identifies as a democratic socialist and think there's a lot of uh, a lot of lessons to be learned, certainly from like the way uh, Nordic countries uh, have built their healthcare systems, et cetera. Um, you know, we are not Sweden or, or Norway um, and have stolen a lot of wealth uh, ourselves from, you know, uh, from black folks and through colonialism and all these, all these different ways. And it seems like there's just a substantively different project. Um, like what's the plan to steal more? <laughs> <laughs> probably not so maybe don't say that well getting back to kind of what you were saying like i mean about the green new deal is that there's this idea that we can have a vision for a better future and i think i mean i'd be curious kind of what you make of this but that you can do that without reference necessarily to um you know a, a, a country which is a very different set of circumstances yeah um, I wonder if maybe he actually didn't talk about the sacrifice enough um, to make it make sense. Hmm. Can you say a little bit more about that? Well, like I don't, it was sort of, whenever I heard him talk about it, it was like, okay, well, how are we going to do it? And it was like, we're just going to do it. And we're going to do it because these other countries did it. So how hard can it be? Um, I didn't hear a lot about like what was actually going to be sacrificed um, because or, or if I did, it was like rich people are going to be the ones to make the sacrifices. Like the plans didn't feel as fleshed out, um, unlike Elizabeth Warren's plans. However, Elizabeth Warren didn't even do that well with black people. So that I'm not so sure that that explains that whole demographic. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, I, I think there's a lot to be said about the 2020 primary campaign. Um, and of course, we are at the end of it um and you know are now in this sort of bizarre political reality for a number of reasons um mm -hmm. and you know i i think i saw you talking about this but you know there was this uh recent story uh in the new york times about mitch mcconnell uh using the green new deal uh as his as his last line of defense and, and, you know, basically just using that phrase to smear kind of any remotely progressive sounding uh, spending proposals, uh, you know, that are leagues less ambitious than anything, you know, certainly Bernie Sanders or even you know, Elizabeth Warren or 
anyone else is putting out. So, you know, I'm, I'm wondering, is that kind of narrative trick something, something to be afraid of? Um, you know, should, should we sort of look to the Green New Deal and, and, and try to reclaim it? Or, you know, what, how, how should we relate to Republicans just sort of, you know, kind of using that, that phrase as a, as a cudgel? I think you got to lean in, right? Because like you could call it anything. You could call it, you know, blue ice cream and they're still going to call it socialist. They're still going to beat you up for it. It doesn't matter what you call it because you're up against a bad faith argument. You're up against a bad faith actor. It's basically like if you're for it, I'm against it. Um, anybody who's like had siblings or had a bully should like be able to tell this trick. Um, they don't like it because you like it. That's all it is. Um, and so you have to learn how to defend the things that you believe in. You know, it's not, naming it something else is not going to change their opposition to it. Um, and they're going to call it socialist no matter what. Um, and they're going to tell, you know, all these people that, you know, socialism is bad, which like, I don't, I don't even really know what socialism is. And I'm pretty sure they don't either. Um, and it, Reminds me of the the thing that Pete Buttigieg said during the campaign. Don't get me wrong. He was not my candidate at all, but he was like, look, they're going to call you socialist no matter what you do. So you might as well just do what you think is right. Right. And it's totally, I mean, totally feasible that we could have, you know, a revenue neutral $10 per ton tax on carbon. And that would also be called, you know, Stalinism. Exactly. Like we've seen this over and over again, where like you take an idea that they thought was good. And now that like you're in support of it, now they hate it. It's the most juvenile sort of bullying tactic I've ever seen. Like it's not even a narrative. It's just like straight up bullying. And it's just ridiculous to see us like keep falling for it every single time. And, you know, I've dealt with my share of bullies in grade school. Eventually you have to fight them. There's no other way around it. Yeah. And and, I mean, so that's, that's happening on, on the one side from, you know, Mitch McConnell and, and, and certainly Trump and the administration. And then there's this other thing, which um, I know you've been paying some attention to uh, that, that is a little more subtle and, and easier to miss, which is younger Republicans and to my mind, people sort of hedging uh, against the potential of a democratic administration come 2021 Um you know, these sort of Republicans for climate change, let's call it. And, and they're telling us, you know, <laughs> we can make common cause, um, but, you know, we have to we have to change, a, 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 you know, the substance of what we want to do. Presumably that includes, you know, changing any talk of, of centering racial and economic justice, just, you know, throwing out that of the picture is distracting. Um, Inside Climate News had the story. Uh, the headline was, uh, you know, some Republicans embrace a slower, gentler brand of climate activism. So, <laughs> how, I mean, what do you what do you make of that? Yeah, yeah, I think a slow and gentle response to a fast and furious problem is fucking hilarious. Um, I if, if it wasn't like also my problem, so then that makes it a lot less funny. Um, I think that um, what they're basically advocating for is a slightly slower death. Um, which isn't to be celebrated on one hand. I also think, uh, I don't think it's ever really been true that Republicans didn't have a climate plan. I think that's like a lie that we've kind of told ourselves. 
Um, and it's a narrative trick that, um, or narrative failure, I think, on the, the left or liberal, I don't know what you even call the side anymore. Um, where it's like, well, the Republicans don't think it's real and therefore aren't planning for it. I think that's bullshit. I think a border wall is a plan. I think uh, the rise of all of these militias and all of these preppers and all of this like fierce individualism, that's a plan. It's not a good one. It's not a humane one. Um, it's an incredibly scary one in which only a few people live, um, but they've like sort of made their peace with that because you know, they've sort of been conditioned to do so. And um, I think also Space Force is part of their plan. I think a lot of people think that's really funny, but I think it is. Um, so, yeah, I think it's um, this, like, slower, gentle, gentler climate solution. I, I think it's just, like, um, what do you call it? Like a smokescreen for their real climate plan, which is very dark and very ugly. Um, You know, one... I, I agree with that. And I guess the, you know, the interesting thing that maybe is happening is that the, I, I think the kind of the big plan from the people in charge, uh, you know, that party and their their corporate friends is exactly what you said, uh, Mary. And then it, I think you also have, of course, people who, you know, for whatever reason, um, Republican voters who don't, who don't have that plan, right? Like, if you do polling, and if you look at polling, you know, data for progress and others, you find, you know, substantial Republican support for things like renewable energy um, and so on. That's not that's not the party brass. That's the the voters. Um, and I guess, yeah, you know, what, what always worries me is that, you know, I think there is an opportunity to split off a lot of the, the base from the political leadership. Um, but it often, you know, like Kate was saying, gets sold to us as, oh, a very mild ta tax credit or we have to give up every single priority of the Green New Deal to, to get these voters on board. And, and I guess um I guess I want to just, I, I don't accept that. I don't find that really convincing at all. But I want to think a bit more about what it means to kind of split the base from the leadership um, when, when it comes to, to climate change. I mean, I just don't see like exactly the Space Force, uh, Fortress America, eco-apartheid logic is really having a potential majority support, um, even though it does among elites. Um, I think that you don't get a, the rank and file to vote for a candidate like Trump if their racism isn't stronger than their will to live. So I think we, we, you can try that strategy, but like I think that they're actually a lot more racist than they are anything else. Um, there was um, an article I read a very long time ago in Harper's Magazine about this sort of phenomenon that's persisted since um, slavery, which was basically like, aspirational aristocracy where you like see yourself um, more reflected in these aristocrats at the time slave owners and now it would be people like billionaires than you do because they're white like you than you do in other people who are in the same class as you because they're not white um, and you see their lives as less um, valuable and so I think we're dealing with people who are very much in a cult um, so I don't think we have time to un unbrainwash them necessarily in order to try to bring them over. I mean, you can try. <laughs> I hear you. I mean, this brings up all these great, you know, arguments from Black Reconstruction, of course, by, by W.B. Du Bois, um, the wages of whiteness. Um, so I don't know. I think we might, yeah, 
I would be tempted to go down a long tangent of, of talking about um, talking about this stuff. Certainly prefer the idea of running up the score um, on the left for, you know, like you said, the Green New Deal, holistic policies that meet our needs and and hopefully winning people over to that. But um, let's let's make a, a bit of a turn here. Um, I want to ask you about a couple of your um, recent essays and sort of thinking about climate change and COVID and, and how we experience them. So one of them, uh, one recent essay that's really terrific, uh, which is for the New Republic, is about kind of the grief of the climate crisis and grief in the in the time of coronavirus. Um, and I want to, so people should read the essay and we'll put the the, the link in our in our show notes. Um, I guess what I, I'm curious to, to hear from you is like, how do you hold on to, on the one hand, in a way that I think you advocate, like holding on to grief, holding on to our feelings about these really horrible and terrible times, and at the same time, be like cold-hearted assholes who are going to fuck up the fossil fuel industry and the other enemies of the climate movement. It's a lot to have in your head at the same time. Um, so I don't know. How do, how do you do it? How do you think about it? <laughs> I think a lot of that stuff is not in my head. It's like in my blood. <laughs> I think that um, it's, it is the grief that makes me want to fuck up the fossil fuel industry. I, I see those sort of, those things as very interconnected. Um, I think I've always kind of been a really emotional person and probably for most of my life saw that as a weakness. Um, and <laughs> only like in the past recent years have figured out, like, oh, it can actually be a strength um, if, if channeled properly and given the type of voice and attention that it needs. Um, so I think that you know, acknowledging your emotions and processing through them is the only way that you're ever really able to create something better. Um, because I don't think repressed people create things that are usually very good. I think repressed people are the types who, you know, go out and colonize and enslave people. Um, you, you mentioned grief, but maybe could you say a word about anger or, or rage? I mean, your, you know, your podcast and newsletter are called Hot Take. Um, <laughs> Yeah, we come in hot on that one. Um, so yeah, I think those are all parts of grief. I think grief is a cycle. And what's interesting about climate grief is that you, it's a cycle that, so like the normal cycle of, of grief includes stages like shock, um, bargaining, denial, um, anger, and sadness, um, or despair rather, and then acceptance. Uh, which is supposed to be the last one and the one where you like have finally processed through the whole thing. And the thing about climate grief is you can never get to acceptance, or at least I can never get to acceptance because then I think you've like gone down this sort of doomer path of like, well, fuck it. There's no point in, in fighting for anything. I can never bring myself to, to go there. So the place I like to stay is anger. Um, I found it to be the most productive phase of it for me. Um, but I'd be lying if I said that I don't go back into like, uh, definitely despair. Sometimes I go back into shock. Um, at this point I can't go back into denial, but sometimes I go into bargaining. Um, and so you sort of uh, give yourself permission to cycle through those different emotions at different times because you're a human being and it's just like part of being alive right now. Um, but when you're able to harness one of those emotions and be productive in them, 
then do it. I mean, the essay that you just mentioned was written during the despair phase of it. Um, and so, yeah. <laughs> sometimes you can harness it. Sometimes you just sit and watch Netflix and both of those are okay. They are, absolutely. Um, and and so, you know, I love this idea of grief as a, you know, as a cycle. And an important part of the cycle for me is thinking um, optimistically about the kind of beautiful world we could build. Um, so you wrote this really terrific essay in the Boston Globe recently, In a Shrinking World, What Will We Pass On to Our Children, um, which we'll also link to, of course. And I think, you know, it comes out of this question, I guess you get a lot asked about, you know, whether women should have babies or if you would have babies or, you know, babies in the climate emergency. Um, and I guess I read this piece as being um, really consistent with a lot of discussions I've been having with, you know, comrades on the eco-socialist left who are thinking, like, what does it mean to escape the dogma of the nuclear family and to have, you know, relationships of care and child rearing um, and kinship that are much more diverse? Um, and kind of multiple and less, again, less, you know, in conformity with just this nuclear family sort of ideology. So I guess I'm curious, like, when you try to think about the possibilities of um, a more, you know, beautiful and broad set of relationships uh, of taking care of each other in this like warming world, what, you know, how do you imagine, um, you know, the kind of world that we could build? Um, yeah, that's something I worry about a lot now that we are quarantined and being pushed so aggressively into like individualism and nuclear families um, and like literally having to run away from anyone who's not a part of your immediate household. Um, and <laughs> all of the parents I know in my life are like really about to pull their hair out um, because they've just like not had a break in forever. Um, so I think it's proving that the nuclear family doesn't work, but I'm also worried about our reticence to let go of it because like this trauma that we're experiencing with Corona is so incredibly deep. Um, but the world I'd like to see is where we all embrace our collective responsibility for and to children. Um, I think that the way we've thought about children is that they belong to specific people, like they belong to their parents or they belong to their families. Um, but I think the truth is that we, um, the previous generation, all belong to the next generation. I think it works the other way around. And so whether you have children or not, you are obligated to them. You are obligated to, you're indebted to them. Um, you're indebted to um, their future and to protect them. Um, so, yeah, and I, I also sort of, I tie it to my own kind of upbringing. Um, I grew up in, in Birmingham, which is like the big seat of my family. So I grew up with a lot of aunts and uncles who weren't really my aunts and uncles. They were really my cousins, but like for all intents and purposes, the way they function in my life has been as an aunt and uncle. Um, my great aunts and uncles were big parts of my life. And so were like all of my third, fourth and fifth cousins. Like we stopped doing the math a long time ago. Um, so this really big extended family um, all kind of looked out for each other. So this idea that like, um, I would often get this on Twitter where I talk about children and people would be like, oh, you only say that. Or I would attack this narrative that like we have to fix climate change for our children and grandchildren. And I'd be like, you know, I'm really tired of this. I, I don't think that's an effective narrative, number one. And number two, 
Um, I'm fixing it like for myself. I'm also fixing it for like my mother. Um, so it's not just about the next generations. And so I would have people come back to me and say, like, you're only saying that because you don't have children. And I think it's the like most moral bankruptest thing in the world if you can only care about children if you have children of your own. I think that's a really problematic strain of thought. Yeah, and I just would agree with that one thousand one thousand percent. And I Daniel has heard me talk about this, but I think there's this really frustrating thing that happens that you were just mentioning, which is like, um, you know, uh, every sort of you know. There, there are just so many sort of very popular climate writings that just focus entirely around that, around that narrative. Uh, yeah. And it like, it might work for some people, but it doesn't work for everyone. And that um, is the beauty of climate change. If there is beauty to it, is that there's so many ways to tell the story. Um, and I think because climate is dominated by a lot of people who think with a very certain side of their brain, they sort of think that there is a right answer and are therefore like uncomfortable with there being like a wide range of ways to tell this very, very big story. Like, I think the science is simple, but the storytelling is big and messy and complicated. And as a storyteller, that's exciting. That's exhilarating. It is like the only thing that is uh, even kind of good about the climate crisis is that there's so much room to play in it as a storyteller. Well, I could not think of a, a more perfect way to, to wrap up this conversation. Although, you know, I wish we could talk, keep talking for another while uh about this <laughs> sure so i i also hate the nuclear family <laughs> <It's a> justification <laughs> for climate action thank you mary so much for for coming on thank you thank you for having me this was fun so that was mary and Anais hegler mary is the co-host of the hot take podcast uh, and co-author of its companion the hot take newsletter Mary's climate writing has recently appeared in the New York Public, the Boston Globe, and Vox, among other outlets. She's a writer in residence at Columbia University's Earth Institute, and we'll have links to her work up in our show notes. You've been listening to Hot and Bothered, a climate podcast in the time of coronavirus. That's it for this episode. We are hosted by Descent Magazine and produced by Colin Kinneborough. If you like what you've been hearing, help us spread the word. You can tweet about the show using the hashtag HotBotheredClimate. And if you're able to, pitch in to keep the podcast running and to cover our costs of production. We're on Patreon at patreon.com slash HotBotheredClimate. So until next time, stay hot, stay bothered, and stay inside. Stay inside.